Strangers, we all know that phrase, first comes love, then comes murder. Wait, what? Yes, you heard right. There's a brand new true crime podcast, The True Crime Bride, that covers the twisted side of weddings. Brace yourself for real-life tales of love gone wrong as they investigate the crimes that shattered dreams of walking down the aisle. From TikTok bride-to-be Megan Miles, who shares her no-holds-barred and often hilarious journey to the altar, comes The True Crime Bride, a true crime podcast that brings you the true stories of nearlyweds and newlyweds who have encountered the unimaginable during the happiest times of their lives. Find out how jealousy, greed, crazy exes, secret double lives, and sinister twists and turns lead to these gut-wrenching and heartbreaking stories that give new meaning to the phrase, till death do us part. The True Crime Bride covers popular historical true crime cases and lesser-known cases that may have happened in your very own backyard. Come explore what lives beyond the veil with something old, something new, and something deadly true. Save the date for suspense. Uncover the dark side of Happily Ever After with this brand new true crime podcast dedicated exclusively to spine-tingling mysteries surrounding brides and grooms. Follow along for weekly episodes that will leave you questioning your I do's every single Monday wherever you get your podcasts. Anxiety can manifest in myriad ways, from ulcers or acne to irritability and exhaustion. Sometimes it can seem like the human body and mind isn't cut out for the amount of stress we pile on ourselves throughout this weird journey from birth to death. Often, our collective worries are channeled into art, whether in the form of sci-fi stories about mind control or in TV shows about zombies or movies about our shadow selves surfacing and taking over. These stories express the mood of a cultural moment. But what happens if the people with the most anxiety don't have a creative outlet? What happens to those who have no voice when their anxieties become too much to contain? Welcome to Strange and Unexplained with me, Daisy Egan. I'm a writer and an actor who couldn't be paid to dance. Honestly, people have tried. I once got cast to play a Ziegfeld Follies dancer. Picture me trying to do that sideways showgirl walk with four other women whose legs ended at the top of my head. And it wasn't supposed to be funny. Sometimes I'll get an audition that says, should move well, and I have to explain again to my agent that they might as well be asking me to come in and speak fluent Chinese. The only way I would ever dance is if I was literally possessed by some unseen force, which is apparently what happened to the subjects of today's episode. In a small town that has alternately belonged to France or Germany as long as those countries have existed, in the 16th century, a craze suddenly hit the town folk that would have been funny if it hadn't been so deadly. Our story today takes place in Strasbourg in Alsace, a region in the east of France that whenever it's talked about in any context, people like to go, Alsace has switched hands from France to Germany for hundreds of years. Isn't that fascinating? But it's not all that fascinating when you think about how often borders around the world have changed over time. 
And then people say, oh, Alsace has a culture that is neither French nor German. Their food is unique. Their language is unique. Isn't that fascinating? But one of the things that makes the rest of the world so interesting is that you can drive from one part of a country to another and experience very different cultures. Bands from Europe will often say that touring the U.S. is depressing because it's just one KFC Pizza Hut franchise after another. We Americans love to visit a brand new city and still eat at TGI Fridays. Whereas you can do a van tour of France and never see the same restaurant twice. Plus, I think you'd find some Italians, Chinese, and Indians, just to name a few, that will tell you that their country's food and language varies pretty widely from region to region. So really, not that fascinating. But anyway, ooh, Alsace. If you have family roots there, you are either French or German, depending on when they were born there or when they left there. I don't know. And as for their language, it sounds like if a French person learned to speak German, or alternatively, if a German person learned to speak French. And the big specialty food is basically sauerkraut that's served with meat and potatoes. So, German. Incidentally, do Germans eat anything green? Do a Google image search of German food. It is the most beige food color palette I have ever seen. Second only to American food, of course. Anyway, the point is moot because when our story takes place, Alsace was part of the Holy Roman Empire, so everyone ate pasta and spoke Latin, I think. I'm pretty sure. Look, if it's not incredibly clear by this point, I'm no historian. I thought the Roman Empire fell in the 400s, but according to the internet, the Holy Roman Empire was something else altogether? I don't know. That just sounds like a poor attempt at rebranding. Like American Apparel rebranding as Los Angeles Apparel. Like, I see you, Dov Charney. You can change the name of your company all you want, but if you keep using those ads that are a hair's breadth away from pedophilia and making shitty, ugly clothes, I'm on to you. So, now that we've gotten that cleared up, in 1518, Strasbourg was at a sort of political and cultural crossroads. According to historian Thomas A. Brady, no, not the oft-retiring NFL quarterback Tom Brady, quote, "...its very large number of convents, monasteries, and churches, of course, betrayed its high medieval prosperity, but the power and number of its guilds embodied the late medieval devolution of power from the old noble patriciate to the merchants and craftsmen." End quote. In a paper for the journal Dance Research in 2017, writer and historian Lyneth J. Miller explained the tensions this way, quote, Strasbourg's elite shared power, if not comfortably, then at least uneasily, with the craftsmen and artisans of the city, creating a city council that represented all but the peasantry, end quote. So basically, more than 1,500 years after Jesus Christ was going around condemning the religious elite for holding too much wealth and power, the Holy Roman Empire was like, yeah, like, we're super into Jesus, but we don't actually have to help the peasants, do we? Because ick. In addition to the politics of the day, I want to quickly paint a picture of the personal hygiene habits of the day because I think that will be a fun fact to keep in mind throughout this story. 
Contrary to popular belief that people of this time only bathed once a year or so, which I literally thought was the case until five minutes ago when I Googled it, apparently King Henry IV was really into personal cleanliness and the cleanliness of his subjects, though he didn't exactly go around making soap affordable to the average Joe and Jane of his kingdom. And still, there was a clinging belief that bathing was dangerous because it allowed evil spirits to enter you through your various exposed holes. Because Lord knows, people's holes aren't exposed any other time than when they're bathing. But people of 16th century Europe, no matter their economic status, were encouraged to bathe and at least tried to change their underwear every day. So the people of Alsace may not have been quite as stinky as I originally thought five minutes ago, but one can assume they didn't smell like violets and tea roses. You feel me? Our story today also begins during a serious heat wave. So there's that too. And now that the scene is set, in the blazing afternoon heat of the day on July 14, 1518, a woman now known as Frau Trophia, first name unimportant, obviously, stepped out of her very modest home onto the narrow cobbled street and suddenly and without any musical accompaniment began to dance and dance and dance and would not stop. Apparently, her husband, Herr Trophia, presumably, was like, Bitte, mein wife, stop and mit der dancing. Scheiße, this is embarrassing. What will das neighbor say? Listen, I know they had some kind of unique dialect or whatever, but I don't know how to do a 16th century Alsatian dialect, and clearly I am an expert at German accents. Anyway, apparently it wasn't verboten to dance in Alsace like it was in Beaumont, Utah in the 1980s classic film Footloose starring everyone's potential friend Kevin Bacon. I thought this was a party! Let's dance! But it was definitely not encouraged. In his 1494 best-selling book, Ship of Fools, humanist cleric and satirist Sebastian Brandt wrote this little bop. I'd take all those for fools almost, whose skill and joy in dancing boast, cavorting, prancing as they must, with weary feet in dirt and dust. But later then I called to mind that dance and sin are one in kind, that very easily tis scented the dance by Satan was invented, when he devised the golden calf and taught some men at God to laugh, and Satan dancing still doth use to hatch out evil, to abuse. It stirs up pride, immodesty, and prompts men ever lewd to be. There's not more evil here on earth than giddy dancing, gaily done. If some class that as recreation, I call it base abomination. Some crave for dances many a tide, whom dances never satisfied. Seems like a fun guy. Anyway, after hours and hours of dancing into the dark hours of the night, Frau Trophia finally collapsed in an exhausted, twitching heap on the ground. 
The next morning, despite her swollen feet, Frau Trophia dipped back out onto the street and was cutting a rug again before even having anything to eat or drink. There's no mention of her saying anything through all of this. Even through her husband's pleading, she was all dancing, no talking. I don't know if she ignored him or was just like, you can't stop this train, mister, it's too late. I just don't know. By the third day, according to a piece titled The Dancing Plague of 1518 by Ned Pennant Ray for the online journal The Public Domain Review, quote, people of a great and growing variety, hawkers, porters, beggars, pilgrims, priests, nuns, were drinking in the ungodly spectacle, end quote. Apparently, sometime between the fourth and sixth day of Frau Trophia's reverie, authorities began to get concerned. I don't know if they were called in by her husband, who was probably shitting himself with embarrassment at that point, or if it was just one of those things where someone is engaging in something other people don't understand, and they have the nerve to be doing so in public, and so obviously the police are called because that makes sense. Like, she wasn't bothering anyone. Sure, people were gathering to watch her, but that's not her fucking fault. Like, mind your own P's and Q's, folks. Let sleeping dogs lie and let dancing people dance. The authorities loaded Frau Trophia into a wagon and sent her 30 miles away to Severn, where they hoped that at the shrine of St. Vitus, she might be cured by some miracle. St. Vitus was a Sicilian saint who'd been martyred in 303 AD and was believed to curse sinners with the uncontrollable urge to dance if they angered him. Now, I'm no expert on Catholic saints, but this is the first time I've heard of a saint cursing people. I thought that was the devil's purview. I thought saints were supposed to be, I don't know, saintly? Unfortunately, there's no mention in the historical records as to whether Frau Trophia stopped dancing during the wagon ride to Severn. I'd like to think she just stood up in the wagon and kept on a groovin' and the cops just hit as many potholes as they could to try to get her to stop. With Frau Trophia gone from their sights, in a somewhat confusing attempt to be cured by the very saint who allegedly cursed her in the first place, the city of Strasbourg scarcely had time to breathe a sigh of relief before more than 30 other Strasbourgians followed Frau Trophia's lead and began dancing, dancing in the streets, dancing in the streets, some of them so obsessively that they literally danced until they died. As days went by, the more people seemingly afflicted by the dancing craze, the more the officials stood around scratching their heads going, What the fuck is going on, you guys? The clergy was still under the impression that St. Vitus was mad AF and cursing Straussborgians left and right. But the Guild of Physicians proposed a more medical cause, suggesting the dancers were afflicted with overheated blood, which actually sounds to me like a rather Eastern diagnosis. Like when my acupuncturist suggested my anxiety was a result of overheated blood and told me to cut out onions, garlic, chili, paprika, cinnamon, and honey from my diet. And I was like, look, doc, I think I'd rather have anxiety than depression from not being able to eat food with flavor in it. And it makes sense that some Eastern medicine philosophies were being employed in Europe at the time, given the openness of trade between the two empires. 
Unfortunately, however, the cure for overheated blood was bloodletting. But for some reason, which I'm sure the locals of the day were relieved to hear, the decision was made to let the dancers just dance it off rather than bleed it out. I suppose the prospect of bleeding a couple dozen people was unappealing to all involved. And so, with the decision made to let them dance themselves free of their affliction, the local authorities leaned all the way in and built stages all over town like some kind of medieval Coachella. They cleared out the open-air grain market, commandeered guild halls, and erected stages wherever there was any extra space. They hired musicians and even more townspeople who weren't afflicted with the jitterbug to come dance with those who were in order to encourage them to keep dancing. This all sounds like overkill to me. Like, I wasn't there, but from all accounts, it seems like these people would have kept dancing anyway, regardless of a stage, musicians, and healthy dance partners. The weirdest part of all of this is they also hired strongmen to come in and prop the dancers up if they started to falter, which is just like, how are you gonna know if they're done and cured if you force them to keep going? I bet you didn't know I was such an expert on all things medical. Listen, I played a nurse on stage one time, okay? I know what I'm talking about. Shockingly, stranger, the plan backfired horribly. Not only did the afflicted not get cured, but onlookers and other citizens took their continued mania as a sign that it was indeed St. Vitus that was causing the affliction. It didn't take long for lots and lots of others to be like, well, if my neighbor Bob has been cursed by St. Vitus, then what's to say that I haven't been as well? And before you knew it, the dancing crowd that was at first a few dozen became more than 400 people. Oops, am I right? And here's the thing, the dancers weren't enjoying themselves. This was clearly not fun or pleasurable. This wasn't day one of Lollapalooza. No, it was more like day two of Woodstock 99. Just exhausted, sweaty, dehydrated people with not enough porta-potties. As Ned Pennant Ray describes in his article, quote, Their arms are flailing and their bodies are convulsing spasmatically. Ragged clothes and pinched faces are saturated in sweat. Their eyes are glassy, distant. Blood seeps from swollen feet into leather boots and wooden clogs, end quote. Blood seeps from the swollen feet into leather boots and wooden clogs. I mean, just can you imagine? If I stand too long cooking in my kitchen wearing good supportive sneakers, my back aches for a whole day afterward. About a hundred years or so later, the legend of the dancing sickness was still fresh in everyone's mind, and poet Johann Schilter wrote, Many hundreds in Strasbourg began to dance and hop, women and men, in the public market, in alleys and streets, day and night, and many of them ate nothing, until at last the sickness left them. This affliction was called... St. Vitus Dance. 
But the sickness didn't leave them. Quite the contrary. According to Lyneth J. Miller, as many as 15 people a day dropped dead from sheer exhaustion. As citizens dropped by the dozen, the city council was like, uh, maybe we leaned in a little too hard? Uh, you think? So the local lawmakers grabbed the proverbial pendulum and swung it so far in the opposite direction, they're lucky it didn't swing right off its proverbial axis and kill everyone else. The powers that be were like, well, clearly it's not a medical problem, therefore it must be a spiritual problem, and so now we're gonna ban dancing altogether. That'll fix it. So they just told everyone, uh, you have to stop now. And I guess that did work for some. But for those who were extra cursed, I guess, the authorities rounded them up like they had done with Frau Trophia. And as Ned Pennant Ray notes, quote, priests placed the choreomaniacs who were presumably still thrashing about like landed fish underneath a wooden carving of Vitus, end quote. Poet and satirist Sebastian Brandt wrote in his account that the afflicted were given small crosses and red shoes, on the uppers and soles of which crosses had been drawn with consecrated oil, and which had been sprinkled with holy water in the name of Saint Vitus. And miracle of miracles, Saint Vitus forgave the sinners and cured them of the dancing curse he himself had set upon them for reasons unknown. The Dancing Plague, which is also a lesser-known ABBA song, had lasted over a month, and though the number of dead was never recorded, it's estimated that it could have been in the hundreds. Okay, so I'm going to go out on a limb here and say that whatever this thing was, it wasn't actually cured by a saint who had started the whole thing to begin with. So let's apply a slightly more modern line of thinking, shall we? Even if the cause was heated blood, which I'm not ruling out, how did all these people end up with hot blood? Were they, like me, eating too many onions and chili peppers, and instead of ending up curled up under their anxiety blankets hyperventilating like I did, they were compelled to boogie down? And if that was the case, why weren't Mexicans, Southeast Asians, and Indians similarly afflicted? Lord knows if anyone eats a lot of spicy foods, it would be those cultures. Or were they immune to it from centuries of inoculation by eating said foods? Swiss doctor Philippus Aurelius Theophrastus Bombastus von Hohenheim, who went by the name Paraclesius, because honestly, who has time to say all those names? You know who doesn't? Anyone. Just ask Pablo Diego Jose Francisco de Paula Juan Nepomucina Maria de los Remedios Cipriano de la Santissima Trinidad Ruiz y Picasso. Anyway... Paraclesis, despite being a man of medicine, suggested that Frau Trophia started dancing just to piss off her husband. That's right. The woman danced herself so silly she was in pain and had to be carted away just to annoy her husband. 
Ned Pennant Ray reported that Periclesis believed, quote, that in order to make the deception as perfect as possible and really give the impression of illness, she hopped and sang, which was almost distasteful to her husband. Upon seeing the success of the trick, other women began dancing to annoy their husbands too, powered on by free, lewd, and impertinent thoughts, end quote. Cool victim blaming, bro. Never mind that the other hundreds of people similarly afflicted weren't all women. Pennant Ray commends Periclesis for at least placing the cause of the affliction back down on Earth rather than being the cause of sin, but points out that Periclesis was a misogynist and that his diagnosis looks pretty ridiculous today. Though Lord knows, these days women are still constantly dismissed with imagining their very real illnesses. So... Another cause floated by historians, and the one that instantly leapt to my mind when I was researching this, was that the dancers in Strasbourg were poisoned by ergot, the same mold that is believed to be the culprit in the Salem witch debacle. Ergot grows on damp rye stalks and causes hallucinations and uncontrollable twitching and jerking. However, in his book, A Time to Dance, A Time to Die, which is also incidentally the name of the next Bond movie, historian John Waller argues that ergot also causes extreme blood flow restriction to the extremities, making it nearly impossible for anyone, let alone hundreds of anyone's, to dance for hours and days and weeks on end. In Waller's opinion, the most likely cause of the dancing craze that swept the city of Strasbourg in the summer of 1518 was a case of psychogenic illness, or mass hysteria. According to the American Association of Family Physicians, quote, many outbreaks of mass psychogenic illness start with an environmental trigger, end quote, like a bad smell or a rumor of exposure to a poison. When one person gets sick, others in the group also start feeling sick. The first person who got sick might have had a real illness, but it might not have been related to the trigger. So for example, someone gets sick at the same time that there's some kind of toxin leak, and even though the illness was a coincidence, others begin to develop similar symptoms, thinking incorrectly that the toxin is making them sick when in fact, nothing is actually wrong with them. Waller's evidence for his mass hysteria theory was that very similar cases of a so-called dancing plague had happened before. On Christmas Eve of 1021 in the German town of Kolbeck, about 370-ish miles from Strasbourg, 18 people started dancing like crazy in front of a church and apparently made such a ruckus that the priest couldn't perform mass. The priest ordered the dancers to stop, and in response, they joined hands and, Waller wrote, quote, danced in a ring dance of sin, clapping, leaping, and chanting in unison, end quote. The priest then cursed them to dance for an entire year as punishment. The story goes that the curse worked, and the dancers could not stop dancing until the following Christmas Eve, at which point they fell into a deep sleep from which some of them never awoke. Hmm, sounds legit. And then, in the year 1247, in Erfurt, Germany, about 300 miles from Strasbourg, 200 people started dancing on a bridge which collapsed under their weight, drowning them all. 
And then Waller writes, quote, Likewise, dozens of medieval authors recount the terrible compulsion to dance that in 1374 swept across western Germany, the Low Countries, and northeastern France. Chronicles agree that thousands of people danced in agony for days or weeks, screaming of terrible visions and imploring priests and monks to save their souls. A few decades later, the abbot of a monastery near the city of Trier recalled an amazing epidemic in which a collection of hallucinating dancers hopped and leapt for as long as six months, some of them dying after breaking ribs or loins, end quote. There are, indeed, contemporary written accounts of a lot of these outbreaks lending some credence to the stories. But call me cynical, just because someone wrote something down at the time doesn't make it true. And I don't know, but I find it hard to believe that people danced for an entire year straight. Like, I don't know a ton about science and stuff, but I'm fairly sure that a person can't dance continuously for 365 days. And isn't it possible that in a time when religious leaders believe dancing to be a sin, they might cook up some stories about people being cursed to dance and dying from it? The Bible is chock full of such stories. Isn't that what Aesop's fables were all about, too? Moralistic lessons about children being too curious or greedy or disrespectful of their parents? And in a culture with stories of priests and saints cursing people with various afflictions for their amoralistic behavior, it stands to reason that people might be susceptible to the idea of being cursed or taken over by the spirit. John Waller explains it this way, quote, The curse of St. Vitus is just the kind of supernaturalist belief that can drive the suggestible into dissociative states. The Chronicles agree that most people were quick to assume that an enraged St. Vitus had caused the affliction. So all it took was for a few of the devout and emotionally frail to believe St. Vitus had them in his sights, for them to enter a trance state in which they felt impelled to dance for days. End quote. Not all episodes of Mass Hysteria are from way back in medieval times. Much more recently, that is within the last century, at an all-girls boarding school in the village of Kashasha in the country now known as Tanzania, three students started laughing uncontrollably. The laughter spread through the school, though interestingly didn't affect any of the teaching staff. We've all had that experience of uncontrollable laughter, right? The church giggles, whether it happens during bedtime at a sleepover until your parents yell, God damn it, go to sleep already! Or literally at church during a very Catholic wedding where you and your sister are not used to looking at a massive crucifix and find it so disturbing you can't help but laugh until the bride's mother turns around and bores holes into your heathen soul until you're sure you'll be going to hell any minute now. Or when you and your friend go to see a terrible play at a very prestigious theater during which an actor's wig comes loose and hangs off their head for an entire scene and the giggles come on at the most dramatic moment in the terrible play until you have to excuse yourself from the theater. Or when you're in a play at said prestigious theater and you and two other actors cannot make eye contact during one particular scene every single night because if you do, you'll all start laughing and the play will be over. 
But those fits last for minutes, maybe on and off for a couple hours. Usually the giggles begin to sound forced and it tapers off and you do finally go to sleep already, not for days and weeks and months at a time. By just a couple months later, 95 students were afflicted with uncontrollable fits of laughter and the school was forced to temporarily close down. When they reopened at the end of May, 57 students quickly came down with uncontrollable laughter, forcing the school to shut down again. It finally reopened in late June of that year. Oddly, there is only one written account of this event in the Central African Journal of Medicine from May of 1963. I don't know if that's because literally no one else wrote about it or no one bothered to look very hard. It seems to me that one or two parents must have written something down when their kid's school shut down or a local pediatrician, anyone. In another village about 55 miles away from Kashasha, only about 10 days after the girls first started laughing at the neighboring boarding school, the laughter began to spread among this village as well. By May, some 217 people there, adults and children, came down with the laughing fits. Several of the girls from the boarding school happened to come from this village. Everyone recovered. And at another girls' school, also on the outskirts of Kashasha, from June 10th to the 18th, 48 girls, almost one-third of the student body, came down with the laughing disease. Then, on June 17th, a student at a school about 20 miles away was sent home because she was laughing too much. And according to the medical journal paper, quote, the outbreak in her village occurred in her immediate family with involvement of the sister, 16, brother, 9, and mother-in-law, 18. The sister-in-law of the father walked 10 miles to see how the sick schoolgirl was and within a few hours was also laughing and violent, end quote. Two boys' schools nearby also had to close down temporarily, and the medical journal paper noted that people with higher education did not seem to be similarly affected. They don't expound on that statement, though. The medical journal noted, quote, The patient has had some very recent contact with someone suffering from the disease. The incubation period is from a few hours to a few days. The onset is sudden, with attacks of laughing and crying lasting for a few minutes to a few hours, followed by a respite and then a recurrence. The attack is accompanied by restlessness and on occasions violence when restraint is attempted. The patient may say that things are moving around in the head and that she fears that someone is running after her." End quote. I would imagine being trapped in a laughing fit for that long would drive anyone a little crazy. The epidemic in Tanzania lasted about a year and a half, and an estimated 1,000 people in total were affected by it. But once it had passed, there was no sign of it ever having been there, nor of what could have caused it to begin with. Again, it might have been moldy crops, but one wonders why it mostly affected younger people. In a not-very-well-written piece from the Chicago Tribune titled Examining 1962's Laughter Epidemic from 2003, Linguist and researcher Christian Heppelman explained the very real circumstances that can lead to mass hysteria. 
We call it mass psychogenic illness, MPI. It's psychogenic, meaning it is all in the minds of the people who showed the symptoms. It's not caused by an element in the environment like food poisoning or a toxin. There is an underlying shared stress factor in the population. It usually occurs in a group of people who don't have a lot of power. Uh, MPI is a last resort for people of low status. It's an easy way for them to express that something is wrong. That may be why it has come to be associated more often with women. It usually starts in a school or in a workplace when people are in a stressful situation and they don't have the power to get out of that situation. In 1962, Tanganyika had just won its independence. The young people involved reported that they were feeling stressed by the higher expectations of their teachers and parents. In other words, sometimes people with no agency in an environment of high stress where they feel like they have no control over their world experience a level of stress so high they develop very real physical symptoms because of it. So maybe old Sebastian Brandt wasn't that far off when he theorized that Frau Trophia was just trying to annoy her husband. Historically, being a woman in most Judeo-Christian cultures hasn't exactly been a picnic. In a very uncertain time when socio-political rules and norms were changing and only a very small portion of the population had any real rights and the church had far too much power over everyone else, it stands to reason that perhaps those with the least power might kind of crack under the pressure and act weird. And if dancing was considered sinful, maybe that was the best way for the powerless to express their anxiety. Maybe, rather than trying to annoy her husband, Frau Trophia was kind of trying to annoy the whole system, whether or not she knew that's what she was doing. Maybe she was so tired of being controlled by everyone that her body rebelled the only way it could. Maybe, in the same vein, the stressed-out kids in Tanzania cracked under whatever pressures they were under. Stress is no joke, y'all. Right now, the rates of anxiety among kids and teens is staggering. A friend of mine took her kid to the doctor recently because they were experiencing tics and other involuntary movements, and the doctor said they were the third kid that day to come in with those kinds of symptoms, and the doctor believed it was all stemming from anxiety. So who knows? Maybe in a hundred years or so, people will look back at the great tick epidemic of the early 2020s and call it a case of mass hysteria. It could be that we are all feeling pretty fucking hysterical en masse. And maybe those of us with the least agency are cracking. If that is what's happening, all I can hope is that we figure out how to course correct before it's too late and we find ourselves in a great big post-COVID Donald Trump mass shooting, police brutality, world terrorism, climate change, dance till you're dead party. Next time on Strange and Unexplained, the weight of incredible talent gone unappreciated can be enough to break down anyone. And for one artist, devastatingly ahead of her time in a soon-to-be booming music scene, it led to her mysterious disappearance. 
Strange and Unexplained is a production of the Obsessed Network and is produced by Natalie Grillo and Angela Palladino. This episode was written by me, Daisy Egan, researched by Jess McKillop, edited by Eve Kerrigan, and sound engineered and mixed by Jennifer Swatek. Our voice actors for this episode were Ryan Garcia and Luther Creek. We have a lot of fascinating and bizarre stories to share with you this season, but we want to hear your episode suggestions as well. If you have an idea for a case we should cover, whether it's a well-known case or something that happened in your town that the world hasn't heard about yet, hop on over to our website, strangeandunexplainedpod.com, and fill out the contact form. If you like our show, please help us out by rating and reviewing us on Apple Podcasts. And if you don't like our show, feel free to leave a terrible review at Apple Podcasts slash Moms for Liberty. Follow us on Instagram and Twitter. We are at SNUPod. And check out the Strange and Unexplained Facebook group to join in the conversation. 